Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 352. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 352 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy-nominated producer and mixer Sean O'Keefe, based out of Chicago, who has worked with Fall Out Boy, The Plain White Tees, Hawthorne Heights, and a ton of other bands. We have a great conversation, which, as usual, I think you're going to enjoy, and I'm really happy to have Sean here on the show today. So, Sean O'Keefe, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Allow me to share some random thoughts. Obviously, if you have a comment about any of the things I say, always feel free to email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com. So let's start with my first thought of the week. Boxes. What the hell do we do with the boxes that our gear comes in? We were always told you need to keep at least seven years worth of taxes in case you get audited or for any kind of credit-based thing where you needed to show your tax returns. Then after seven years, you know, you, you throw them out. And obviously now we're on to mostly PDFs these days with our taxes. However, boxes are not taxes. And boxes hold pieces of gear. We buy a piece of gear, it comes in a box. When you rack the piece of gear or pull the mic out and the ca- you know, in the little case it comes in, when you put the piece of gear into use, what do you do with the box? In my case, I've been storing it in a shed that has, is on its way to becoming repurposed as my wife's office. What if I need to send that piece of gear in for a warranty repair? I, I'll send it in the box. What if I sell the piece of gear? I'll send it in the box. It's caused me to ask the question, is the box really that important? Let's say you send something in for warranty repair or out of warranty repair. You could generally obtain a box from the manufacturer or you can carefully wrap it in another box. And when it comes to resale, you know, does the box really affect the resale value? I don't know. Some may say it does, but I don't know. My wife is really not happy with the amount of boxes piling up in our living room, and I'm not happy because I don't want to put them in my studio because they're going to eat up space. Don't want to put them in a closet. Don't want to put them in a, on a shelf. Where do you store these big old boxes? Because, you know, even a single rack space piece of gear comes in a fairly sizable box because it has all the accessories, it has all the packaging to protect it. So once you expand into two, three, four, five rack space pieces of gear, the boxes kind of get out of hand. Now there are smaller boxes, of course. I've got, you know, I'm looking over here at a little Sony uh, PCM M10, little Sony recorder, and I'm staring at that box and I'm thinking, what do I need that box for? I don't know. Damn boxes, they're haunting me. Anyways, if you have a thought, feel free to email me, Matt at WorkingClassAudio.com um, and share with me your thoughts on boxes. Now, here's another part of this, and this kind of ties into this a bit. Falling out of love with gear. And I'm not just saying generically across the board. I'm talking about pieces of gear that you buy over time and eventually they become redundant. They become useless, they become outdated, and you find that you're not using that piece of gear anymore. Case in point, maybe you have a power amp that powers a pair of speakers. So what happens when you switch to a powered set of speakers? You have a pair of speakers you gotta sell, or not, and a power amp. And I'm in this situation now, I've got this Yamaha uh, P2200 amp. I think it's like five or six rack spaces. It's heavy, it's a beast. I've just kind of fallen out of love with the idea of using it and having it. I respect it. Uh, I think very highly of it. It's like an old friend. So me and this Yamaha power amp, I think think we're going in our separate ways. I'm thinking different thoughts and it's not changing. It's staying the same and that's okay. (laughs) Yeah, I'm referring to inanimate objects like sentient beings. So there it is. What do you do with the gear that you start to, you know, drift apart from? Well, you know, I would always encourage you to sell it. You could donate it. Some people would say, oh my God, I paid so much for that. 
And if you remember to one of my past rants, you don't always have to get the money back out of a piece of gear that you got years of service out of. You know, you've probably made your money back several times over and it's okay to let go. It's okay to give it away, donate it. And if, you know, and if you're so inclined and you need another setup, repurpose it, put it into a new setup, you know? Maybe move that set of speakers and that power amp, in my case, to somebody else's studio or uh, another room where you're doing a different kind of work. Uh, or just, you know, maybe you repurpose it and put it in the garage and it's a, um, a setup that you listen to podcasts on when you're working in the garage. I don't know. I'm trying to figure out what to do with this stuff. So that's it. Yeah. Boxes and gear that we're falling out of love with or drifting apart from, I, I guess would be a better way to put it. Send me your thoughts. Happy to hear them. Matt at workingclassaudio.com. That's my rant for today. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Sean O'Keefe here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Matt. Your recommendation from our mutual friend, Justin Perkins, former WCA guest, great mastering engineer, and uh, all-around great guy. So I'm super excited that you're here, so we'll dive right in. Where did you grow up? I grew up just north of Chicago in a suburb called Wilmette. Basically, just like 15 minutes north of Chicago. And I've spent pretty much my whole life in Chicago, with the exception of a few years recently. <laughs> As a kid, did you journey into Chicago to, to see whatever Chicago offers? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. So I grew up in actually what I thought was like kind of a typical suburb. And I, I later learned it wasn't as typical as 
I guess, most suburbs in America in that it's a little bit more rural. But either way, yeah, when, when we were kids, you know, all the all the shows were in Chicago. And so it was kind of the place that you wanted to go to. And you thought not only was it exciting, but it seemed like the cool thing to do. Mm-hmm. Probably especially because my my mom like and dad didn't want us to go there. <laughs> But yeah, 100%. Yeah, it was always something we would do. We would take the train down or sometimes drive down. And Chicago has the Metro, which is a pretty iconic venue. And a lot of our favorite bands would play there. So as I got a little older in high school, we would go a lot. Yeah, it was great. And then pretty much right after high school, I moved to Chicago and basically spent my adult life in the city. At this point, I feel like I'm from the city just because I have spent so much time there even though I grew up north of the city. Before you moved to Chicago, did you experiment or learn anything about recording or audio in your late, in your teen years? Yeah, I got interested in recording. Let's see. Well, I was a musician. I started out actually playing guitar and, but then kind of quickly shifted to drums when like we had our drummer left his drum set in, in our basement and I I had more fun playing those than I did <laughs> the guitar. So I kind of started doing drums and, and I played in bands and all that stuff. And I, I kind of just, like I think a lot of recording people, I became that guy in the band who was interested in recording and, and kind of fussing around with all the stuff. So I started recording a lot when I was in high school, just on a four track that was a friend of mine. So I borrowed and I did a ton of that, actually, so much so that even in our high school, and I haven't thought about this in forever, we had a like kind of an art group called Calliope. And every year they put out, I guess it was a magazine. It was supposed to represent all the art in, in our high school. And there were illustrations and there were drawings, paintings. And I went to them and said, what if we what if we added a CD to it for music? And And so anyway, they let me do that. And we had like... All the bands at our high school, and it was, a, I went to a big high school. There was 4,000 kids there. Wow. Yeah. It's like college size. So yeah, all these bands submitted to be part of this thing. And it was my project and I recorded, everybody got to do one song. And I think there were 22 different artists and I recorded 22 songs in my basement. <laughs> and that was part of it. And and as far as I know, I think that that trend has continued. I think the Calliope, whatever they call it, is still has an audio portion of it. And I think bands and musicians from the high school still do that and it's carried on. So yeah, I had been doing a lot of a lot of recording even before I graduated high school. Chicago is definitely known for harsh winters. So <laughs> I would assume that this happens when you live in an, in a city or a place where it snows a lot, you spend a lot of winter time indoors doing things, learning things, obsessing over things was was recording and experimenting with the four track part of that wintertime activity? Honestly, I don't I don't remember it being that way. It, it could have been, but I think I was just super interested in it and it didn't <laughs> didn't matter what the season. No, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> now that's probably changed a bit, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping more to get out in the summer outside. That that's why I ask. Because <laughs> yeah. at that time, no, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> Yeah, because it seems like, you know, if you live in like like Michigan, where my wife's from, it's it's like summertime hits and everybody's outdoors just all the time. All the time. It's actually pretty amazing. I mean, this, the winters are horrific, as you know. But the amazing part is that when the spring comes around, the city lights up in a way that is pretty um, electrifying. It's It's pretty nice. It's inspiring. And I like that. That's a good part of the brutal winters. <laughs> so was it scary moving to uh, Chicago coming from the burbs? No, it was exciting. No, I, I wanted to go. And to be fair, so I moved. <laughs> it's kind of a weird story, but a- after high school in our family, my dad is he's like a real big like academic and he put a lot of pressure on on all of us to go to college. And he has three degrees. He's a... Uh, <laughs> His law degree, his CPA, and his business, master's of business. He's like this overachiever academic type. And and so me wanting to do music was not in the car. Like that did not roll with him. So in our family, it was, you got to go to college. That's you, ha- you have to do that. And I kind of wanted to 
just do music. And yeah, he wasn't okay with that. And and we kind of met in the middle and there's a college in Chicago called Columbia, which is like a fine arts school and it's a regular college, but they had a recording program. And so we kind of settled on that, that I would go there. And um, the deal in our family, luckily was that as long as we go to college, he would pay for our dorm or apartment or whatever was necessary or living basically while you were at college. And in Chicago, if you're from Chicago, you can't live in the dorm downtown. Only if, I think if you're from out of state, maybe. And so I was going to get an apartment to not live at home and because he was going to pay for it. But I wanted a space I could make music. And, and you can't really find that in apartments in Chicago because there's neighbors everywhere. And, and so I found a building that wasn't in Chicago. It was still just north of it, but five minutes. And it was a freestanding office building. And it had basically only two offices. And on one side was the owner. And he worked there with his secretary from nine to five. And the other side was for rent. And so I decided to try and rent that thinking I could make noise after 5 p.m. every day and on the weekends, basically. And I asked the owner and he's like, yeah, I don't care. You know, I only work nine to five. Just don't make noise during nine to five. And so I rented that with my dad's money as my apartment, even though I wasn't supposed to be living there. It was an office (laughs) and there was no anything. There's no kitchen or whatever. So the point being that I set up a little studio there and started working and I was living there for a couple of years until the fire marshal came and obviously figured out that I was living there and he kicked me out. And at that point, I moved and got an apartment in Chicago and I kept the space. I kept the space as my recording space. And then I guess the other part of that story is that I went to Columbia to study recording And kind of the funny thing is, I think you probably know when at these recording schools that it starts off rather slow and rather mundane. And and if you're like, I was a punk rock kid who was in punk rock bands and all I wanted to do was just hit record. And I didn't care at that time about all the little nuanced things they were teaching me. And so I was going to school and I felt really bored and I was trying to get out of school to go back to my office space to record my friend's bands or whatever. And it's at a certain point, maybe two months in, I told myself, I don't want to go to school anymore. I hate this. But if I quit, my dad's going to cut me off and I can't pay rent anymore. And I did decide to quit. And I made a promise to myself if I did that, I would try and get an internship at a studio in Chicago. And so I called all these studios. But anyway, I stopped going to school. I didn't tell my dad. And six months in, he said, where's your report card? And I said, ah, well, I actually stopped going to school. And that was it. And he cut me off. And it was sink or swim at that point. And I put out like a little ad in our like local music paper. And I was still delivering pizzas. But from that day forth, that's literally been my only job recording music. It, it somehow clicked. But that was my transition from the suburbs to Chicago eventually. <laughs> that's an age old story of kids going off to college, parents paying for it. Then they stop going to classes. I've heard that story so many times and and from from a lot of people (laughs) that I grew up with as well. It's interesting though, when the shit hits the fan, in this case, your dad going, okay, you're not going to school. I'm cutting you off. Could have been the best possible thing for you. Yeah. It really forced your hand. Yeah. It forced me to have to figure out how to earn a living doing this. That was it. If he had paid my way, say for four years and somehow he didn't ask for a report card or whatever, and I didn't have to pay rent for four years, that would have been totally different. It probably would have set a terrible expectation for me in terms of moving forward. So yeah, I think it turned out good. You know. So in the sink or swim situation, you successfully swam. And, <laughs> and so you put out an ad Walk me through the steps. He cuts you off. What happens to the apartment? What happens to to you? I knew he was going to cut me off. (laughs) So I think I was getting prepared for it. I was positive that would happen. And I was delivering pizzas, but I don't, I I believe that I knew that that income alone probably wouldn't have covered rent and food. So I put out like this little ad and there, there was a, at the time there was a music newspaper in Chicago that had all the studios advertising in it. And I think I was lucky in that Most of those were in the city proper, and I was just north of it, maybe, like I said, like 10 minutes or something. And I don't think there were a lot of studios in the area. And so I kind of put out this ad, and I got some phone calls. And one of them actually was, I was in a a very Jewish neighborhood, and it was actually kind of cool. It was this this band, I remember their name, called Evan Shasia. And these guys were probably in their mid-50s, like late 50s. They were all Orthodox Jews. And they had a band and 
they loved doing music, but they totally had lives and kids and families and jobs and everything. But they had somehow found a way to get away from all that every Wednesday from after dinner at like 6.30. And so they booked my studio. They came over and they thought this was the coolest thing that I had a studio in, in their neighborhood. And it was like their way of getting away from everything in their life. And they loved it. And so they would come every Wednesday. They literally booked every Wednesday for like two years. And they would come at like 6.30 or something. And they'd stay till like one, two or three in the morning. These guys, it was hilarious. And we got along and, and I was like, amazing. And I think they're just like those four days a month in my pizza job, like basically paid rent. And it was kind of this like miracle. <laughs> and they kind of became like a family to me. It was pretty, pretty cool. So you obviously developed a, a, a very tight relationship with these guys. I mean, for that booking that much time over the course of time, it all comes back to something that I've harped on. Relationships matter. Yeah, hundred percent. That that is it, isn't it? I mean, you don't even need to be great. <laughs> you really don't, do you? <laughs> no, you, not even like very good. I don't think. Like probably just pretty good. <laughs> yeah, and and I'm curious. Did you feel that you treated these guys like great customers, or did you f- kind of find find it annoying? Or no, no, no. I no, I I treated it super seriously. Yeah. No, it was a, it was, it was amazing to me to have somebody come back every week and use the studio. No, it was incredible. And that, the reason I ask you that is because I think some people would have their idealized studio client that would yeah, take them off into the stratosphere for their career. And these guys doing their Wednesday, their Wednesday warrior thing, we'll call it. <laughs> yeah. Some people would not treat that as serious as as it sounds like you treated it and and I think obviously you did the right thing so that's where I'm going with this is that kudos to you well I thanks yeah I don't it wasn't a conscious decision you know I I didn't know what I know now about how to better manage a career you know or a business in recording I wasn't thinking about any of that stuff but I was excited about having a studio and I was excited about recording anything and I was excited that they helped me pay my rent. And I think part of it honestly could have been that my other friends were off at college and it felt cool to me. It was like that I could do this. <laughs> and it was not a conscious decision. <laughs> I got lucky. Move me th- forward through how all of this progresses and what happens. Well, let's see. So I got that internship eventually. I had called as many studios as I could find in that kind of magazine. It was called the Illinois Entertainer. And I got no's across the board <laughs> and and rightfully so. And then I called back probably a, a number of them again and got no's. And then at one point I met some guys who I was just playing with in a band who had recorded a CD at a studio in Chicago and they played it for me and I thought it sounded awesome. And I asked where they recorded it. And they said, this place, Gravity Studios. And I said, oh, you know what? That's one of the ones I've tried to get an internship at. I really want to work there. And they said, oh, yeah, we can try and talk to Doug, who's the owner. And I don't think even that actually got anywhere, really. Let's see. I do remember I called Doug and I think he said to me, and they were a cool studio at that time. I mean, they were like a very happening Chicago studio. And he said, call me back in three weeks. And I think I called I don't know, four or five times. And he kept saying no. And one day I was mastering something that I worked on at a studio in Chicago that I read about. And the mastering engineer, we were talking about gravity. And I just said, oh, I've been trying to get an internship there. He goes, oh, Doug's like my best friend. Let me call him. And he called Doug and he goes, you got an interview tomorrow. And I go, okay, great. And so I went over and, and I got the internship. And and that was definitely a huge turning point for me because it pulled me away from my, the only recording experience I had in my little studio, which was an eight app machine and a Mackie and a couple of microphones. And I walked into a studio that had a vintage Neve and a, a Studer 827, a two inch tape. And it was a, it was a legit studio with everything. And I didn't know what any of it was and how any of it worked. And it seemed cool. It seemed like I was in the right place. I just wanted to interrupt for a brief sec. For the audience, Sean's talking about Doug McBride, who's been on the show. So if you want to check out WCA number 223 and listen to my conversation with Doug, you'll get Doug's perspective on 
on this end of things, not on this particular scenario, but at least on his time in Chicago. Yeah. Doug is, Doug is great. Doug is, he's still a good friend. I'm actually having breakfast with him next week (laughs) and I still use his studio every now and then, but, but that place ended up being everything to me. Um, I mean, I, I won't totally fast forward, but to give some insight, I mean, I wound up making all my records there. I, I, mixed and produced three gold records on that same console from that studio and uh, or records that went gold. And so I went from the first day, literally not knowing, like, I remember, I literally remember looking over the knee with this like blue thing. And I was like, what the fuck does all this do? Like, I literally have no idea. And it made no sense to me. And even though I thought I totally had a grip on recording with my own setup, Anyway, yeah. So the internship was hugely valuable. It led to so many things. Meeting people, actually Justin Perkins basically stems out of gravity. So that's when things really started to kick into gear for me, I think, in terms of learning. Well, let, let me let me ask. So during your time at Gravity, where you continued doing your own studio where you were doing the Wednesday Warrior thing with those guys, right? hundred percent. Yeah. The internship at Gravity is one day a week. That's how they schedule it. That was the most you could do unless you filled in for somebody. And so you would go there for a long, typical 12, whatever it was, 14 hour, whatever, however long it went, right? The old school studio kind of schedule, which for me was nothing. If anything, I wanted it to go longer. I was, I was 19 years old or maybe 20. I wanted to be there more than I could be there. That would kill me one day a week. Oh, it would really be frustrating to only like this thing you want to do and you're only there allowed to go one day a week when you know you want to be there every day. Oh, a, a thousand percent. Yeah. That's all I wanted. And, but I was going back to my studio and I was, I was making recordings for Evan Shasia and all my friends' bands. And oh yeah, I was in it somewhere in there. I, I was able to quit my pizza job and I had enough work to sustain the rent and continue doing gravity. But yeah, I kept them both going. That was my world for years. Where did the internship take you? When did you get out of that role? So at Gravity, it was kind of the typical old school model where there was Doug, who was the owner. There were, geez, at the time, two or three engineers, even though this is just a one room studio. And then there were, I guess, seven interns, one for every day of the week. And the sessions would typically be a producer and an engineer or second and an intern. It was it was all hands on deck type of deal. And the, the way that you would move up the ranks was you would go from intern eventually to second and you would become staff at Gravity. But to be fair, because I was recording bands back at my place and probably because I was a naive little shit, I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to be the, the guy recording. And it seemed like it was going to take a long time to get to second engineer, to first engineer, to producer or whatever. And so I kind of thought to myself, well, I'm recording bands at my place who are already hiring me. So what if I just convince them to book a day at Gravity and we do some work at Gravity and I'm the guy? And I somehow convinced a band to do that. And I booked the session and I went from intern to like, I guess being the producer on the session because somebody said, okay. And then I kept convincing people at my studio. I think the routine was let's record at my place, but let's mix at this awesome place with this awesome console. And I got some people to say cool to that. And then I got some people to say cool to let's do some drums. And I basically somehow bypassed I never worked for Gravity. I was never actually on staff. And I just started becoming a freelance guy doing that. And and I got lucky. One of the bands that I did a couple, we did two songs with, they sent them around to indie labels and they got a record deal from it. It was this band called Knockout in Chicago. And it was a label called Fearless Records who I've worked for them a lot. I mean, I did that Hey There Delilah song for Fearless Records way down the road. And, and the band said to the label, we want Sean to make the record. And the label said, we love the way this sounds. So great. And so I had my first record on an indie label and I booked Gravity for like, I don't know, like a week or something. I kind of felt like I was like coming into Gravity is like I stepped it up. It's like a more than just a weekend, you know, drum session. I now had a real project. And then things kind of continued, thankfully, down that road from there. I want to dissect it a little bit because yeah, when you're an intern at a place, there's a perception that others have of you. And I think that there's an unspoken judgment of your abilities or inability of being an audio 
professional. And the minute you book a place, that perception changes. I'm sure. Was there a little like, oh, really? You want to book the studio? (laughs) To be fair, I think Doug, the owner, no, he was awesome. I think he was like, great. That's super cool. And I think he was really supportive of me. And I think he knew that I was kind of making records on the side and that on some level I had it figured out in terms of I understood how it worked, although he clearly knew that I didn't know what I was doing, you know, but I think he knew that I I knew enough where I wasn't going to burn his place down or like, or I wasn't going to fuck something up um, yeah. severe, um, <laughs> I think. But on the, on the flip side, the funny part is, man, like, there were the engineers there. And I think that that was not super cool with them. And I think that there was some like competitive nature and I get it. I I would probably feel the same way. Yeah. I don't think that they loved that. I was like basically kind of trying to sidestep the whole process (laughs) and just doing it my way. Yeah. And I think there was definitely some, some kind of weird tension there. And it's interesting if you, if just looking at that, I'm like, okay, from Doug's perspective, he's like, great. Somebody else to book the room, you know? Yeah. But yeah. from the other engineer's perspective, I'm sure that they were pissed and and that's where the ego gets involved. Yeah. But I love that you did that. I love that you just barreled through and said, yeah, I have a project I got to bring in. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. The other engineers, it also probably meant that it was the days they couldn't get paid to work. That And that I get it. That sucks. A one room studio. Yeah. So in in that time period that, you know, you were kind of in that that routine of working at your place, doing some gravity work. What was your big takeaway from gravity? What What are some things that you picked up from Doug about anything, whether it's audio related or business related? A lot. That's such a good question because there's, there's so much because it really, it opened the door. Yeah, I probably don't often give gravity or Doug enough credit for one thing, that studio was, I only say was because I don't work there as often, so I'm not positive what it's like today, but I have no reason to believe it's any different. It was impeccably organized and run. The Neve was in phenomenal condition. They really cared about having a system in place for everything. Now, I didn't know anything about anything. And, and I later learned when I would go to other vintage Neve studios that that's not the case in a lot of other places. It So it was, yeah, it was very organized. Doug was... He was very, I don't want to say strict, but he 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 was really good about defining what was important in sessions such as cleanliness and great track sheets and what not to say in front of the artists, you know, and how to stay out of the way and kind of manage really the reality of, of record making outside of all the technical stuff. He taught me that stuff too. You know, I asked all about all that kind of stuff, but that was my school. You know, I don't know how you Maybe you can learn that in school. I don't know, but it seems like it'd be hard. Yeah. And then also producing. I saw what it meant for him to, I didn't know what it meant to to go through vocal takes and, and really focus in on words or tuning or, you know, I was, what did I know about that? Like, yeah, I saw all that stuff. It was, it was cool. It was really cool. <laughs> hmm. Obviously your world expanded beyond your studio and gravity. Yeah. How did this all go from there? Where, where does it go from there? Well, on my second day, actually, as an intern, the engineer was an outside engineer, this guy, Mike Zirkle, who's just such a phenomenal guy and engineer. And he was in from Madison and he worked at Butch Vig's Smart Studios in Madison, which is kind of an iconic place or was an iconic place. And so anyway, it was my first day and I met him and I didn't know anything about anything. And But he was super nice and really friendly. And he was a repeat kind of guy at at Gravity when he was in Chicago. So Madison's two hours from Chicago. It's not far. And so it's normal that he lived in Madison, but maybe he would come and work with a Chicago band for a week at Gravity. He he needed a room and that was the room he used. So we became friends. And at some point when I was starting to make these records, as a matter of fact, that first record I mentioned that, that got signed, when that happened, he asked me, he said, hey, why don't you come work up at Smart? It's like a really cool studio. And obviously I knew Butch of, of Butch Big, you know, and I grew up on Siamese Dream and never mind, like probably most of us. And it was the holy grail to me. And I actually didn't know about the studio until he told me about it. And of course, my reaction was, yeah, when? Like, how, how do I make that happen? And he was super cool. He kind of took me under his wing and he said, okay, let's go meet Butch in the band at backstage at a show in Chicago. 
And I was like, okay. And, and he goes, and then I'll take you up to the studio and show you around and let's figure it out from there. And so I got to meet Butch and the band and Butch was just really nice and said, you should come recorded smart. <laughs> and I said, great. And I went up to the studio and I saw it and it was beautiful. It was, it's really an amazing room. There are two rooms. It was a Rupert Neve design room where they both are. And I said, yeah, what, what how do you want to do this? And it was kind of the same thing where they kind of said, yeah, actually he's like, well, you can work up here if you want you can do like paid internship or whatever. And I literally did one day of that and I helped him, I don't know, move a bunch of shit around for a day. And at the end of that day, I had the same thought, which was, I, don't, I just want to work here. I don't want to, I don't want to be a paid intern. And so I found a project and I called him up and said, I've, I've got a project. Can we record there? And he's like, great. The first recording I ever did was that. And it was Fall Out Boy. They were friends of mine and they had asked me if I'd make some demos for them. And so I convinced him to go to Smart Studios. I said, there's this amazing place. It's Butch Vig's place. It helps when you're trying to sell a studio when it's owned by Butch. They're like, great, let's do it. And so we rolled up to Madison for a few days or for four or five days. And we recorded three songs and we mixed them. It's funny, those songs to this day, those mixes never got changed. And those wound up being on their first record that I made for them. And one of them to this day is on Rock Band. I had to go and open it up like years later. Yeah. And that was the first thing I ever recorded at Smart. And it, so it, it really was a good start. <laughs> now at the time, you know, we just recorded the songs. It's not like they became a gold record overnight. It was, they, but, but they shopped them around for a record deal. And the, some record companies came back and said, can we get a couple more? And so we did a couple more. And at that point we couldn't get to Smart. We couldn't get up to Madison, but we went back to Gravity and, and we cut a couple more songs and, and then they had a lot of offers for a record deal and they got signed and they asked me to make the rest of the record. And so then became kind of my typical routine for years to come, which was I love Smart's drum room. And so I would go up there and we would cut drums and maybe some bass and guitars. I did that with Fall Out Boy. We come back to Chicago. We would usually do the overdubs in my studio because we had no budget left. I mean, we spend the big money on the drums and, and we cut the rest of the stuff at my place. And then we would go to Gravity and we would mix. And I loved mixing at Gravity. And so that's how I did the, the Fall Out Boy record. And the ball started kind of rolling from there, you know, when Fall Out Boy really gained some traction. Then I was lucky enough to start getting asked by, now it was like record companies, indie labels, can you do a record for this band? And for the first time in my life, bands were coming in from all over the country and even the, the world. And we would kind of do that routine. <laughs> and I spent a few years just doing back to back to back to back records and it exhausted the shit out of me, but it was fun. <laughs> and yeah, so that was the next big kind of turning point, I would say. For the audience, just another WCA guest, Butch Vig, WCA number 220. You can check that out. Link will be in the show notes. You can learn all about Butch. You can learn all about Doug. And then now kind of like, you know, give you even more wide perspective here on Sean's story. So you didn't have any real formal training because you, you left school and you learned on your own, right? Yeah. Any formal training I had was learning at Gravity. And it seems like the things that you were working on just became successful. Yeah. Yeah. What would you attribute that to? Like, if you look at the way you did recording techniques then, the bands you were working with, could you identify what it is you were doing? Was it simplistic? Was it just like you didn't know as much, so you kept it simple? Or <laughs> I think I can identify it to the best of my objective ability, which is Patrick from Fall Out Boy is a great songwriter. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> and he's a phenomenal singer. And it starts there. It doesn't end there, but it starts there. And then the next thing in line is that we were all super excited about doing this. And like... There was nothing else in any of our lives other than wanting to do this and do it well and, and being inspired. And I don't want to say being competitive because I don't think we were competing with anybody, but we were just really excited to do it. And that's all I wanted to do with my life was I wanted to record something and have it sound like the records that I listened to when I put them in my car. And, and I wanted to get that feeling. And it seemed impossible, but I do remember being at Gravity and starting to record there and starting to use like those techniques that they like kind of showed me and just some basic stuff. Well, not basic, but basic to maybe you and I now, but at the time mm -hmm. it was not. And some of them worked. And I remember 
some of those things, yeah, it was like, okay, things are actually starting to kind of sound alive and like things are starting to kind of come through the speakers in a way that you would hope. And the rest of it, honestly, yeah, there's tons of flaws in all that stuff we did. You know, it's like there's tons, but a lot of them don't matter, obviously, or, you know, in some instances. Because the songwriting. The songs. Yeah. I mean, to this day, Patrick is easily one of the best songwriters I've ever worked with. And if you have somebody who's a great songwriter like that and you're recording them, it really starts to kind of tell you what to do in a way. And Mm. you'd have to work hard to like really fuck it up. I think that that's the truth. (laughs) I think the songs are, are a big part of it. Really interesting. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app. And I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. So you're in Chicago now. Yeah. So you had your original studio with, and I know I keep referring to the Wednesday Warriors. They should change. That's great. They should change their name to that. I love it. Is that the same place that you would go and do tracks with Fallout Boy as well? Yeah. Yeah. I had that spot for five years. I did all the overdubs for Fallout Boy at that studio. And the only reason I got rid of it was because it was next door to a big restaurant and and the restaurant ended up buying the building and leveling it and turning it into more parking. Mm. And so friends of mine joke, they'll pull up to that restaurant and park uh, and they go, I'm parked in your studio right now. And cause yeah, <laughs> but I found a studio in Chicago, actually funny enough, I I'm pretty sure you've had him on your show is Ken Sluter. Mm. Have you had Ken on? I've had Ken on. Yeah. So Ken had a studio called King Size in Chicago and he, that was when he moved to LA and he was renting King Size and it was right when my studio was getting sold. And so I hit up Ken. I didn't know Ken, but I met him for the first time and and I ended up taking over his space, King Size. And to be honest, so, you know, from there, I won't go through all of it, but one of my many regrets, I would say in like my journey is that I never either was in a position to, or put myself in a position to say, I'm going to try and buy a building and have this be my studio. Part of that was that I started my career as a freelance guy and it was pretty normal at the time to be bouncing around between studios. That was cool. Like there were budgets, relatively speaking, to do that. And it was kind of normal. And I never really wanted a studio, like a real full place. I liked a small place. I could do little things, but I liked going to big rooms. I like going to smart. It's fun. They, they treat you great. You know, it's like they make you feel like you're king and, and it's nice. And I think bands, when you take a band into a studio, I think they feel pretty kind of like, okay, this is real. And so I kind of let that ride for a while. And I always had little home setups and things like that along the way. And I've had a couple little rooms, but when you look at the sum of that, it's brutal financially. Mm-hmm. It, you're, it's a lot of moving and it's a lot of setup and The point is, thankfully, we just bought a house in Evanston, which is 
borders on Chicago. Chicago's like eight minutes from me. It's just north of Chicago. It's basically where I grew up. And it's literally the first town north of Chicago. Isn't Evanston the home of Sure Microphones? Sure is in Niles, which is just west of us, like probably 15 minutes. Yeah. It might have been born in Evanston, but but yeah, the Sure building is is in Niles. Evanston is where Northwestern College is. It's basically a city. It's kind of this unique little city bubble. It's a really cool spot. It's, it's our favorite place. Yeah, I think I'm seeing it here, actually. Sure, actually was in Evanston for 47 years. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. And now, now and you just said, not now they're headquartered in Niles. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That yeah. totally makes sense. Yeah. That's what it says on their website. Yeah. I'll have to go and see where that original Sure building was. Evanston's like a mini city, basically. It's, it's not really, it's like a soft city. A soft <laughs> um, but, city. <laughs> We're coming up with all these names. Wednesday Warriors, Soft City. <laughs> yeah. So we, we just, only three months ago, we bought a house finally, and it has, thankfully, it's got a really nice, in Evanston, there's coach houses, which is just a, a space above a garage. Mm-hmm. So we found a place that has a, a really nice coach house. It was a two-bedroom apartment, functioning apartment. So it's a whole thing, and it's 800 square feet up top here. And then, and then downstairs next to the two-car garage, there's even like another couple hundred square feet. And yeah, so the plan is to eventually gut it all and build it into my my mix and overdub room, which finally, that, that's it. This is the <laughs> last stop, at least. Yeah. Hopefully. Do you ever think in the future you would have a building or is this, do you, do you like this setup? I love this. I will never have a building. No, yeah, no chance. Not only do I not want anything to do with that, the upkeep and the overhead and the amount of equipment and the everything involved and the extra expense is like, for one thing, it would just bury me, I think. And it would eat me alive financially. But I just, I like getting out and going to studios and and having a studio like an 800 square foot or a thousand square foot studio that's capable of 95% of everything I do gives me an excuse still to go to really beautiful drum rooms and other spaces and get out of the house and get off the property. And I want that. And I don't want to eliminate that from my like kind of recipe of making records. Yeah. I think that would, that would bum me out if I didn't get to do that. And so I'll never do that. I don't, yeah. I don't think. And I'm sure you would agree. The economics just work more in our favor when we have our own places to do the bulk of the work that yeah. we need to do. Personally, I can't imagine doing mixing from any place else right now. I, I have all my comforts, creature comforts here, as I'm sure you do. Yeah. It's almost mind boggling to think back to the days when you would go to a studio that wasn't yours and mix a record. To me, that it sounds frightening in terms of not being in a comfort zone. Even if, even though I was mixing at the same studio, it doesn't matter. It's like, I'm so used to it. Like you said, now that sounds hard. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you a couple of businessy type things. Do, have you ever had a manager? Yeah. And do you still have a manager? Yeah. It's funny you ask. I've had a manager. A long time ago. And then actually just this year, we're, we're slowly ramping into it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I've, I've had a, a manager who's a guy, a company I, I know really well. I've known for a long time. And we kind of started doing it this year. And this year I had a few projects that really required like contracts and things like that. And basically where I really had a need for something to be managed. Yeah. So we're, we're slowly making that a thing right now. Help my listeners out a bit here because I think a lot a lot of listeners might think, "Oh, I need a manager." But when do you think is the right time to have a manager? When is it really necessary? I think it's when you have a situation in a career that needs management help. Look, I I was on that side of it too for a long time where I thought getting a manager is going to make my career happen, you know? Mm -hmm. Like and when some of my early records hit, I made the rounds. I went out to LA and I met at that time with what were all the big management companies. And it was kind of weird because they kind of give you their pitch and you kind of feel like a rock star. And, but I think you all, it comes with a lot of misconceptions about what it really means. So to answer your question, I've never known a management company who's there, who's going to just get you work. <laughs> and, and that's usually the first wrong piece of, of information that people assume is that they're going to pick up the phone and they're going to call whatever label or, man, or, or artist manager and say, we've got this amazing producer 
and let's book him on the next record. That's not going to happen. At least I've never seen that happen. But like, you need to have a situation, and it, those can be different, of something that that needs management. And and so usually that's one of two things. It could be, let's say you're the busiest guy on earth, but you're not working with artists who are, for lack of a better term, known. Like you're not working with artists that are full-time national touring artists, right? Like you're working with weekend warriors um, or something like that, or local artists, but they're not fully full-time artists. But you could be busy as shit doing that. You could have so much work coming out of your ears. So I would say at that point, you could totally need a manager because you need it's worth paying the commission to have somebody deal with managing all of those projects and helping your budgets and all that stuff. That would be a situation I would say, get a manager and free up some of your time. And hopefully you'll make a little bit more money and your world will be more organized and your business will be more efficient. That's one um, another example I can think of, which is probably a little bit more typical from what I've seen, is you make a record for a band that starts to get some real traction. And now maybe they've signed a record deal and they're doing good and people, they're on the radar. And even if it's just that, I would say at that point, it might be worth considering at least talking to a management company because now they have something that they can kind of work a little bit. You know, they, they've got, you've got a record that's happening and now they can maybe start adding you to the conversation with other band management or artists or, or yeah, art, artist labels and say, well, my guy did this record that's doing well. And they go, oh, interesting. Maybe we can test them out on that. But if you don't have that, what are they going to do? <laughs> you know, like- There's nothing to manage. There's nothing to manage. If and, you don't have um, that. Honestly, at that point, it's just a waste of your money because you're just going to pay them a percentage of your income. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I, I would say for anybody who's up and coming, if you're in those one of those two situations, I would think about it. Yeah. But even then, uh, management is not, it's not the answer. There are plenty of huge mixers and producers that are self-managed. Mm-hmm. They've just decided to do that. Maybe they're in demand enough. They don't need it. Maybe their partner runs the books or maybe they're better off hiring somebody to run the books or, or contracts, you know, and it's just, you got to decide how to run your business. I think. Yeah. I guess when you're dealing with national touring acts, you're, you're dealing in probably, you know, major labels, you're dealing with major promotion, bigger sales, bigger streaming numbers. Did you in the past was it common for you to get points on the stuff that you were working on? And do you still get points or even partake in that world? Does that even exist? Yeah, it exists. Yeah, I did. Luckily, I got points on Fall Out Boy in those early records. Now, not all of those worked out. The biggest record I ever made, the record company didn't pay anybody. And, and there was a two-year lawsuit. And it was, it was a whole thing. And the band filed bankruptcy. And it was really sad. And none of us ever got anything. So I don't want to give the impression that just because you have points, you're, you're making money. You know, it's like there are other things that can happen along the way. And even like in a court of law, you know, it's like that you can't, for instance, that band, they filed bankruptcy. And technically I'm a, I'm a creditor. They owe me the band, but they were never paid. And it's just the same as, you know, if, if somebody files bankruptcy, whoever they owe money to those, they can't collect anymore. You know, that's, that's the way it works in certain bankruptcy laws. So it's not a fail safe situation, but like I was lucky that I had some points small. I was starting out, you know, I didn't have big producer points, but I had some enough where I'm very thankful to this day that they're there. And it is still a thing for me personally. They, I started in like 2000, basically uh, 2000 and maybe two or three is when my first record really started selling. And that meant something financially and, and then I saw the decline of, of record sales, and I definitely saw the decline royalties basically go away when everybody was downloading music for free and nobody was buying music and streaming hadn't, they hadn't figured it out yet, a paid streaming service. And then once that started happening, I would say really caught on and became, you know, like now, for instance, I think I would imagine very few people are are ripping music. There's no reason to, because you can just go to Spotify, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. And so those numbers, I've seen them come back up. And in the last five years, I've seen them, it's nowhere near whatever it used to be. And that I think those days are over, but like I've seen them come back up. And so that's told me that, yeah, royalties can be worth something today, 
having said that, I think that whoever you're working for probably needs to really be killing it in order for that to happen. But I just produced a record for a band called Beach Bunny from Chicago, and they're on a label. And when I was making their record, and they're a grassroots indie band that just kind of did their own thing. But when I was making their record earlier this year, they all got their gold records from their last single. And so it happens, you know, like it, it's crazy. <laughs> and it was cool to see it. Not, not, I didn't have anything to do with that single. It was just from their last recording. But right. Yeah. And so I think I think there is a world where where things numbers can catch on enough and royalties. I would imagine it's probably more of a game now of its quantity. You know, like if you have 10 or 20 records out there in the sea of things that are doing good that those can start to mean something. But I, I'm definitely no expert on current royalties. Mm. But my, my, my manager thinks it's worth it, if that means anything. When, when we did our deal, they felt it was, it was worth it. I, I've mixed records in the past where with my old manager, a record for a band that was on a label, and the deal they offered me to, for mixing was, we'll, we'll pay you X amount of dollars for your mixing fee plus this royalty, or we'll up the the fee and no royalty. And my manager did the math at the time. And he said, this thing's going to have to sell so this many records for it to outweigh what they're paying. He's like, it's just, you know, it's not worth it. And and he was right in that instance. Obviously you never know, but maybe they're, they're, you know, it's probably still worth thinking about if something goes big, you know, like hmm. it would suck to lose, I guess. Yeah. Is, is it typical for mixing engineers to get points? I think at a high level, yeah. Okay. I think when you're talking the the real top guys, yes, for sure. At my level, I've mixed some records where I can get them and and some where they just give you the finger. You know, it's it's no thanks. But honestly, it's so funny because to me, I I'm just thinking this out loud right now, but you know, a point is I think it's supposed to be like a sharing a profit sharing situation in that you had some effect on the outcome, like some important effect of, of why this thing was successful and therefore your profit sharing. I believe that was the intention. And from a mixer standpoint today, I would almost argue that mixing today has more of an impact on the record than it ever did before. Because today, as a mixer, you're often doing a lot of shit, you know, like you might just be doing more than making it sound cool. Like, and so maybe that's an argument for why it's not crazy to ask for a profit share. Yeah. Or as Tim Palmer would say, it's predicting. I heard that. It's Production so and mixing. <laughs> it's so good. And it's true. And I mean, boom, right there, you know, it's like, it seems like a good, a reasonable argument yeah. for it to me. And I think Tim also said, I could be wrong about this, but I think it was Tim. In the old days, it's like you had... Mutt Lang and Mutt Lang would go through great pains to get everything tracked right and, you know, do all these very intricate things. But now with Pro Tools, we all can be Mutt Lang in one respect because we can just do all kinds of crazy stuff that mm. we couldn't do before. I know this sounds like we're having this conversation in 2000 <laughs> or the late 90s, but realistically, there, I would agree. There's a lot of insanity that can go down in a mix that ultimately can lead to a very different outcome for a record in terms of, you know, sonically where it, where it lands. Yeah. And it's like, if you were the artist in, it's so hard because you can't, you can only know these things when you're done, but like, but if, if you were finished with your record, trying to put myself in the artist's shoes, like if I hired somebody to mix my record and let's just say it was the situation when, when we were finished, if I said to my bandmates, holy shit, like, we could have never gotten to this point without this him or her, you know, like we just couldn't have at that point. I think it's probably reasonable to say, yeah, they, they should probably have a point or some kind of profit share because they aren't replaceable. Like they put a unique situation into it. Like, and maybe you mix a record, maybe you're an artist and you send it into the opposite and you, and you go, it sounds great, but like, yeah, maybe those, maybe three other people probably could have done something the same because we had our ducks in a row. And why should we, why should we give up a point? So you kind of have to, yeah, I guess, look at it case by case. And I guess sometimes it's just easier just to get paid for the work you do and call it a day. Just charge them what you what is a fair market rate. I think a lot of people probably prefer that these days. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a guarantee, you know. <laughs> just give me my money. 
<laughs> yeah. I think the days of royalties are over of like, you're not going to buy a house off mixing or, you know, it's like, that's gone. Maybe at some level, I'm not sure, but I don't, not that I know of. We're just about out of time, but I wanted to ask you, you know, do you have any economic lessons you want to pass on to the listeners that, you know, you feel strongly about? It's a good question. It's such a good question. Obviously, I know you talk about this on your show a lot, and I, I've heard a lot of people's opinions and insights, and it's helpful to me. I think because we're we're in a we're in an industry that is obviously it's set up to have you make bad decisions inherently financially. You know, it's like uh, yeah, there's there's some degree of like in the music business when you're successful, it means you've made a lot of money, and it, so if you own a lot of equipment, you're obviously successful. And it's like and so I think people often, including myself, you'll get the urge to buy stuff to make yourself feel like you've, you've made it. And you want to show that to people, you know, it's like, and you're, you're, you're just immediately making these terrible decisions. And it's like, you're not helping anybody. I thought of this the other day before I even knew we were going to do this. And so here's my thought. I would hope it's obvious that the gear ultimately doesn't matter. I really hope that that's obvious to people. Let me interrupt. What do you, what do you mean? I know what you mean, but I just want to hammer it home. So when you say the gear doesn't matter, yeah, here's here's the example I thought of a quick one. Okay, so let's say for instance you're a recording guy and you're you're early in your career, and let's say you've recorded a band one day and you have you're just whatever you know run of the mill setup, nothing fancy. I'm not sure what that would be, but something very affordable, right? Some mics and an interface and blah blah blah. And let's say you you record a band and it's just the song is uh, drums, bass, vocal, guitars. That's the song so far, and you've recorded that and that has worked out okay. And now the band goes home and they say, okay, we're going to book another day. And we, the song feels good, but we really, it's not there. And we really need to find a way to make it sound better. Particularly the second and the third chorus need to be better. Okay. And so, and they're saying this to you as a recording engineer. So now let's say you, you can go, I'm going to pick two different directions. You can go into how to solve this problem. One would be, you could say, man, I'm going to go buy a Neve preamp for whatever, for $5,000. And I'm going to record, I'm going to go buy a U47 for $15,000. I'm going to, I'm going to spend 20 grand on a, on a mic pre and, a, and an amazing microphone. And when they come back, I'm going to say, let's double the guitars in the chorus, second chorus and the third chorus. And let's double your vocals in the second and third chorus. And with my new mic pre and my new microphone, it's going to be humongous. And this song is going to be amazing. Okay. Let's put that aside as one example. Take the other avenue <laughs> and you go home and you say, okay, fuck the gear. Let me think about what actually is important in the song. And you think to yourself, well, geez, the guitar voicings are all low voicings and that's all they're playing are low voicing chords. Maybe if I suggest to the guitar player that he plays something higher up in the second and third chorus, it will make that song feel more alive. And I'm going to use my same recording setup I've already got that I've spent some money on, but not too much money on. And then we still need to get the third chorus to elevate. I'm going to spend the night and I'm going to try and come up with some harmony ideas. And I'm going to suggest to the vocalist that he tries some high harmonies in that third chorus. Okay. So to me, if you were to run down both of those scenarios, I would imagine that the song having thought of of arrangement parts in the second scenario, the song is probably going to come across more energetic and more exciting and solve the problem at hand for zero more dollars. And the other guy is 20 grand in debt. And I don't even know if that would make really almost any difference at all. You're just, so the gear doesn't matter in terms of it's the ideas and it's your approach and it's the arrangement that ultimately matters. That's what people respond to. And yeah, at a certain point, nice gear matters. It's nice to have a nice mic pre. It's nice, but you have to, you can't put it first. Like it has to be like, get a shit ton of experience, like focus on your ideas. And then if you've got money in the bank because those ideas have made you some money and you want to spend money on a nice mic pre as opposed to your car or your kids, whatever, go for it, you know? But like, fuck, don't go into debt for that shit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. That's what I was looking for. That's yeah, what I was looking yeah. for. <laughs> Obviously, you're preaching to the converted here. Uh, yeah, me too, you know. Well, where can people find out more about you, Sean? 
I have an outdated website that I think is seanokeefeproducer.com. Uh-huh. And I have a somewhat updated Instagram. When I kind of am around people, I'll post stuff, which is ebbs and flows depending on my work. And my handle, I think, is Rose Crud. I think you can Google and find it. And yeah. honestly, that's, that's the most I got out there, I think. That first studio I had was Rosebud Studios in 1999. And my friend who was helping me with it, one day I said, hey, we, we need an email. It's 1999. We got to get on that. Can you get me Rosebud at AOL? And I came back the next day and he said, Rosebud at AOL was taken, but I got you Rose Crud. And that's been my email and my username ever since. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. Well, great talking to you. Thanks again for coming on. and. Wow, what a, you've had quite a journey, and it's been fun hearing about it. Yeah, thanks. I, I really appreciate you having me on, and I, I love your show. I always look forward to hearing more. It's great. Oh, thank you. I get tired of hearing my own voice. I can't imagine like listening to all these episodes, so thank you for listening. It's great. It really is. Yeah. All right. Well, you take care. You too. Thanks, Matt. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Sean O'Keefe here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Remember, if you like the show, head on over to Apple Music and leave a review, five stars, if not, you know, something written. And of course, if you have any questions, you can always reach out to me, Matt at WorkingClassAudio.com. If you have a guest suggestion, there's a guest suggestion form actually on the website. Use that instead of the contact form because that fills in all the details for me of everything I need. So obviously we have a need for guests. So if you have a great suggestion, head on over to Working Class Audio and fill out the guest suggestion form. But that's all for me today. I want to thank my crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith there, the magical voice that is Chuck Smith. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.